This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Set Podcast. My guest today is Paul Carey. Paul, good to have you here. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. So you have a new album, One on One. Yeah. What inspires you to continue to write and record new music in this crazy musical era? I'm not sure. I do ask myself that same question every now and again. I think there's a couple of things. Um, A, I've on a bit of a mission to have my own body of work. Um, You know, I've been in several bands, as you probably know, and I've, I've had the great pleasure and honor to play with some fantastic people over the years even sung you know lead vocal on some you know quite well-known songs and everything but i i realized i came to the conclusion that i didn't have um any rights to a lot of these things and um also i just wanted to have my own my own body of work my own catalog you know that's one reason Let's talk about body work, especially about 18 months ago, you put out five live albums simultaneously. Tell me the yeah. backstory there. Well, the backstory is that for, I guess, for the last uh, 20 years uh, of, a, of a very long career, um, I started to release my solo stuff on my own label. Uh, it's a very small time thing. Um, but uh, we also started to record um our live shows i mean i've done i I started touring constantly to uh establish myself because even back then nobody knew the who the hell paul carrick was they may have known the songs or the voice or what have you didn't know the name so we started to record all the shows and um my good friend a guy called peter van hook he's kind of i guess you would call him a manager um, he's my mate, basically, of 30-odd years. 
Okay, now he ultimately was a musician, then he produced records with Rod Argent. How do you yeah. know Peter Van Hook? Well, I first met Peter um, when at the beginning of the Mike and the Mechanics project. Uh, Peter was the drummer, original drummer in Mike and the Mechanics. He was a, a very kind of busy uh, session guys back in those days when sessions were the thing. And um, he played, I think, for about 10 years with Van Morrison. And uh, I met him at the photo session for the Mike and the Mechanics album. <laughs> <laughs> and I took an instant dislike to him. <laughs> okay. Because he was talking uh, away in this, he was talking to the keyboard player, Adrian Lee, in this language I didn't understand. It was all about MIDI and uh, all that sort of stuff. And I, I, I had not yet been introduced to MIDI. I was still very um, low tech. But anyway, that's when I met Pete. And uh, But I got to know him and really love him on... Uh, uh, as I got to know him, and he's my biggest fan, um, he's my biggest supporter. He had the unenviable task of sifting through all these recordings and uh, and and put together this sort of compilation of life stuff. I, I, I be honest with you, I've not heard a lot of it <laughs> because I understand that you understand good. I mean, if I write something, I don't reread it. It's too yeah, creepy. Exactly. It was a moment exactly. in time. Exactly. Okay. But why five albums simultaneously, and what has been the reception there too? Well, we had a pretty good response to it, actually. Um, why five albums? I don't know. You'll have to ask him. I mean, we've been, uh, as I said, on a mission to uh, establish myself as a singer-songwriter independently, and it's involved a lot of gigs. So we've we've. Uh, recorded a lot of shows. There's been a lot of songs. I mean, I've, I don't know. Somebody told me it's something like 17 or 18 albums we've released on my own label. So we have a lot of songs. Well, I will say on those five live albums, I know I'm talking to me, I'm talking to you. It'll sound like hype, like I'm blowing smoke up your rear end. They're phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, really? Are they? I, I, I might you know, I say, listen. <laughs> I, the only problem with those albums is people haven't heard them. Because yeah. I, I'm surprised at the quality of the live performance. It's almost like a studio performance. Well, I'm surprised. Um, that's that's good to know. Maybe I should give them a listen. But um, as I say, we've made quite a few albums uh, in the in the studio. But um, as you say, they're not really that well known in the states, which is to my great regret. Okay, let's go back to go 20 years ago going independent. Tell me that story. Well, um, you know, I I just meandered along there for many years. As I said, got to play with a lot of great people. Um, I'd made one or two albums for several record companies. And the case would usually be that I'd make a, an album They'd release a couple of singles and um, then I'd move on or they'd drop me is probably the way it really was. And um, I got to the point where I thought that I made it. I started to make an album here at home. It was called Satisfy My Soul. And um, I liked the way it sounded. I just and I didn't like the thought of having to go around to record companies trying to 
uh, hawk it because I knew they would say, well, it's fine, but you know, maybe you need to do this or maybe you need to do that or the other. And, um, I, I liked it the way it was. And, um, this guy, Peter Van Hook, he said he had some experience. He'd had a little jazz label and he said, well, why don't you just do it yourself? Just release it yourself. And at the time it was a bit scary because um, people weren't really doing that. And I had no idea how you released a record. Um, but, um, we did it. Uh, we, we just started, it was, as I say, very small time. We just got a, an independent radio plugger to take the record around. And we got a, a, a great airplay on the mainstream radio here in the UK and, uh, things sort of, you know, grew from that. Okay. Let's go back to something you said earlier, the body of work. I understand, but w what was your motivation at this point in your life to want to create a body of work? Well, there were several things. I mean, as I said, I realized that um, I'd contributed to a lot of uh, other projects and other people's careers, and um, I was happy to do that. I was just happy to be involved in music, and I I, I loved it every minute of it. Um, but the, when I started this little label of mine and um, – I, I wanted to re release a compilation of stuff that I'd done over the years, and I was happy to license it from uh, and pay the royalties uh, to the to the majors. But then uh, a couple of things happened. Then when the, I wanted, to, there were a couple of tracks, significant tracks that I'd been involved with, and I wasn't allowed to license them or put them on my. And that's that's kind of when the penny really dropped, and I thought, you know, I need to have my own stuff that i control and then and that's mine okay so 20 years ago you start your own label traditionally musicians are good musicians they're not good business people mm. there's a lot of business involved in running your own label who does that business well as i said it's we it started on a very small time level um I didn't really have a clue how it worked, how the nuts and bolts of it worked, but um, it was quite simple. We uh, just got a distribution kind of deal, you know, somebody who was prepared to put the stuff out, and um, we employed a couple of independent radio pluggers that we had worked with in the in the other bands, and that we knew well, and um, we started from there. And, um, I'm, was quite prepared to get my hands dirty. I'm from a very kind of working class, um, Northern, uh, upbringing. My folks actually were kind of independent in as much as my father was what you call a painter and decorator, you know, he would paint people's houses and, uh, my mum ran a small store where we sold paint and wallpaper and we lived in the back of the store in a, in a one room at the back with, and but two bedrooms and an attic the outside toilet and no bathroom and all that sort of stuff. And I saw my folks, uh, you know, after kind of what they'd gone through, they'd gone through the depression and then world war two and then, and they worked their backsides off just to make things so I, I I definitely saw how hard they worked, and and it's kind of in my genes to 
I was prepared to, as I say, get my hands dirty and 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 try and build something. Okay, so your first experience with the first independent label. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, in terms of the effect of the independent, as you put it, song pluggers, etc., that you got as good a shot as you got when you were with a label? Um. Probably got as good a shot as I did as a solo artist, but not as as with the bands. I mean, for for example, Mike and the Mechanics. Of course, Mike is the guitar player in Genesis, and um, so they ha- had a lot of help from record companies. You know, um, we had TV spots, and uh, the records were given a real good chance, and we had great airplay. So, no, I wasn't getting that. I didn't have that kind of clout, but I had a little bit of momentum from involvement with uh the such as them and um and it grew it 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 really grew i mean it wasn't my intention to um i've never chased i never wanted to be famous or anything like that but i i I just wanted to uh survive and make music and have a good band and uh do my shows and make my albums as simple as that. Okay, so you're making your albums. You're paying for the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So what kind of budget for one of these albums is there? Well, um, f- for example, with the first one, uh, Satisfy My Soul, I made it here at home, and I played more or less everything on the record. And uh, I engineered it myself. So it didn't cost a whole lot to make the record. But as it doesn't these days, if you kind of know what you're doing, but it, the, you know, the problem is, or the difficulty is to, to get it heard. And so as an independent in the UK, it wasn't too difficult because, um, I had a little bit of a history and, um, the UK is a small place. So, you know, we, we had good support from the mainstream radio, the BBC Radio 2. That's the big kind of mainstream radio. And they they liked what I did. It worked for them. And uh, subsequent albums also, it really worked very well for them. So, But to try to expand and internationally and, and is much more difficult. But I had a thing going, you know, and I was getting support. Uh, I had a band that we're really into it. We, we love going to work. We toured up and down the country. And I was happy. I am happy. <laughs> okay, a couple of things. You essentially put out an album every other year. Most artists of, the, of your vintage, they don't put out new music at all. So what keeps you writing and recording? Well, as I said, I'm not exactly sure. But I think it's the fact that... Um, Although I've had, you know, little bits of success here and there and, and, and a, a look inside the window, uh, um, I never <clears throat> felt that I had that body of work that I could point to or th- that album that I could say that is the quintessential album. So I think it's it's purely just to keep uh, self-satisfaction. I, I still keep thinking I could do better, you know. Okay, so this latest album... Mm-hmm. Tell me about the making of that. First, when do you decide? Do you have a target when you want to make a record or you say, or you ultimately write enough songs and say it's time to make a record? No, I just, uh, in, in this particular case, I had no plan whatsoever to record last year. I mean, uh, I had a whole diary of uh, live stuff. 
Um, I had a UK tour with my band. I was going to go to Australia, Japan, Europe. And I also have been involved uh, quite a bit in the last nine years or so playing keyboards in Eric Clapton's band and touring around with him. So we had a whole year. Um, but 30-odd shows into the year, in the middle of March, of course, the pandemic hit and venues were closed down. And initially, everybody thought, well, we, we'll be back up there in a month or two. Um, but that pretty soon became obvious that that wasn't going to be the case. And so having my this little facility here I have at home, which is fantastic, um, I just started coming in and uh, playing with my toys and uh, recording stuff, and uh, it evolved into uh, an album. Okay, so on these albums to this day, you're the producer, you're the engineer. To what degree are there outside musicians and what degree you do everything yourself? On this particular album, it was almost totally myself, engineering, um, playing all the instruments. Um, but uh, towards the end, end of the thing, I, I, for example, I had uh, written and recorded some horn parts, but using samples and et cetera. And didn't sound too bad, actually. But um, when it became possible to get people in i got in a horn section uh that i'd worked with before including the fantastic Wee ellis which we can talk about at some point if you like um and uh, i had one track that needed a real good guitar solo solo on it and i i'm not a great soloist i got my friend robbie mcintosh to uh remotely play a great solo on the guitar but other than that it's pretty much me Robbie McIntosh, average white band, right? Uh, no, um, you're thinking of the drummer. Okay, his name escapes me. But Robbie McIntosh, no, he was in the Pretenders. Right, he, right, right. He was with uh, Paul McCartney and played with people like Nora Jones and Dire Straits, and he's a fabulous musician. Okay, so tell me about Pee Wee Ellis. Well, Pee Wee, I got to know through Peter Van Hook. Um, because they worked together with Van Morrison for many years. Pee Wee, of course, is a legend. He worked with James Brown and did some of those incredible uh, horn arrangements. And uh, Peter introduced me to Pee Wee on my previous album, which is called These Days. It's about three years ago. And Pee Wee wrote some uh, great authentic horn arrangements for, for that. And he, he did one horn arrangement on this new record on a, a track called um, Lighten Up Your Mood. But he's a beautiful guy. Um, he, unfortunately, he passed away in September at the age of 80. Um, but he was a real, he was a proper legend and he was the authentic, real deal. And um, he uh, lived it large. Just talking about this album, obviously costs were low. You finish the record, you EQ it yourself, or you go to an outside mastering house? Well, for the first time ever. I mean, I'd never even mixed my own albums before because I'm I'm not a technical guy, either as a musician or an engineer. I kind of know how to work Pro Tools in my own cack-handed way, um, but I never trusted myself to um, 
mix to me it was a you know a uh, oh that's real that's a technical person he's got to be somebody who knows what they're doing and in the past i've gotten things to the mix stage and uh, then handed it over to a, a, a proper proper mixing engineer and they then bring the whole thing back to scratch and and build it back up again and it never hangs together in the way that i've heard it so this time again this guy peter van hook said to me no you have to mix this record and i was like oh no i can't i don't know what i'm doing and um but i did i we went with my mixes that i've worked with as we went along and then there's this other stage called the mastering uh situation which is like i never understood it's like you get your mixes they sound great and then they go to this other stage mastering and then they do another process which is they add eq and compression and again it changes the thing so to be honest we did hand it over to a couple of uh mastering guys who had a shot at it and when it came back i didn't like it because it didn't sound how i wanted it to sound i like the way it sounds it's engaging it doesn't hit you in the face but of course a lot of these mastering guys now are trying to get it on the radio and make it a kind of more aggressive and uh hi-fi in in order to um get the radio attention but i didn't like it i I liked it the way it was and that's what we went with okay there's one thing to balance all the instruments another thing to add delay echo reverb etc you just figured that out all by yourself in the mixing stage well it's not like you record it and then you mix it. it it's you mix in it as you go along and that's what happens you get used to it i'm not a expert as i say but i i have ears and um i know the kind of reverbs and echoes and things i like to hear um i mean they might not be the ultimate but when they are working you have to go with them because they, then that's when you start changing that stuff. The whole balance uh, changes. And um, so, yeah, we went with my my ideas. What kind of equipment do you have in your studio? Well, I have a Pro Tools rig. Right. And what kind of board? It's just a control surface, really. It's a, it's a control 24. It's just a, it's not a big fancy Neve or anything like that. I have some nice preamps, uh, some Neve preamps and, uh, and the like. And, um, the stuff is pretty much recorded organically. You know, it's just, I just plug it in and, uh, when it sounds okay, that's when, that's what I go with. You record in the same room that the equipment is in. Yeah. By and large, yes. And what speakers do you listen to? Now, what are these things called? They sound great. PCMs, I think they're called. They're real nice speakers, but they're not flattering, uh, but they're not tiring. They just sound good. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, how'd you end up working with Clapton? Well, I think years ago, it must be so over 10 years, I think I played a few sort of uh, charity-type gigs where Gary Brooker, you know, from Procol Harum. Of course, Harm, of course, yeah. Gary... Um, is very good at putting these things together. He would put a, together a house band kind of thing too. And we, he would get in some uh, real stars like Eric Clapton, Roger Waters, uh, people like that. And uh, for various charity events. And then I played on a few of Eric's albums, things like Pilgrim, um, <sighs> Reptile, and a few other albums, just a few tracks. And then, um, one day, as I say, eight, nine years ago, he called me up and asked if I could come on the road with him. And um, I was delighted to to say that, I yeah, it dovetailed beautifully into the what I had going with my own band. And I, I, I guess I did what was pretty much probably the last world tour in as much as we did. We played in the States. We went to the Far East. We played in Europe, Japan. And it was just a marvelous experience. Well, he's on the road now. Needless to say, you're not in the band. No, that's not true. We, we, I was in the band uh, the whole of September when we just did some shows. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those, so they, those uh, dates were done. We, we did eight, uh, nine shows, I think, 
in the southern states. Yeah, I didn't know you were in the band on those. Yeah, I was, yeah. Okay. One has to ask, what do you think of his viewpoints of uh, vaccines for COVID? Uh, well, I don't think I'm going to be drawn into that too much because uh, I don't even know exactly where he stands and what he said about it. But I, I know, all I do know, and I think I'm at liberty to say that, is that he had the vaccine twice and he had a very bad reaction. And he's spoken about that. Personally, I've also had the vaccine. And um, so I don't precisely know or agree or uh, about where his stand on where, where he stands at the moment. But um, I must admit, I have my skeptical thoughts about what it's all about. And I'm uh, it's a little skeptical about um, uh, mandating people who don't wish to, for whatever reason, have the vaccine. As I say, personally, myself and my family, we have had the vaccine. And um, I don't think we've had a bad response to it. But um, I think I think people are entitled to their own opinion. Okay, so you go out on the road with Eric. How much rehearsal is there if you're going to do nine dates? Well, it was a couple of weeks, but bear in mind, most of the musicians, in fact, all of the musicians involved have played with Eric before. before. And um, so when you re rehearse with Eric, it's not so much about, um, you're not learning parts, you know, you're not getting the parts tight and accurate and all that. It's more about, it's more like getting to know everybody again. And uh, because you never play this stuff the same twice, it's all on instinct and vibe, you know. So the the I can't say that the um, rehearsals are that intense. You know, we we play some music, we chat, we chat, we have a cup of tea, we play a bit more, we have lunch, we play a, a bit more, and then um, that's it. So, so and and it comes together. Okay, you're on the road. To what degree? Are the set lists and the parts set in stone, and to what degree does that change every night in improvisation? Change it? Oh, well, it, it, it's totally uh, improvisation. I mean, uh, well, not totally. I mean, there's a framework. There's a set. It changes only a little. Predominantly on this last thing, it, the changes were in the acoustic section in the middle, and he did some new things there, and he also only used he used microphones on the acoustic thing like on the guitars and stuff like that and he didn't use pickups because uh, and i understand why because the, the pickups even great as they're getting they don't really sound like an acoustic guitar sounds when it's played in a room and I, he was very much trying to get uh, you know that real sound of the acoustic guitar so we had to play very very quietly in the acoustic section and that changed a little bit, but um, the set pretty much stayed the same. Okay, so you have these endeavors. You're making records. You're going on the road, going on the road by yourself with Eric Clapton. Let's just say you never worked another day in your life. Have you made enough money in the music business to get to the end, or you got to work for a living? Mm, depends what you mean. Uh, I think I probably, I would probably be okay. I'm trying to help my kids. I have four grown-up kids. They're all um, 
basically have regular salaried kind of jobs, which I'm quite happy about, or not jobs, but careers. Um, and I, I have one son who's a chip off the old block who plays in my band. Um, and the cost of living and the cost of, uh, you know, real estate has just gone crazy. Um, they have small apartments and stuff. I'm trying to help them as much as I possibly can while I'm still here. Um, we have a nice life. We're okay. We're, I think we're what they call the comfortable poor. <laughs> we're, we're, we're doing okay. Okay. And then, so forgetting COVID, before COVID, how many dates a year were you on on the road? Uh, whew, who's counting? I mean, we would definitely, with my own band, we would play January, February, March into April. Uh, we would play three to four nights a week in theaters up and down the UK. And then we would generally at that point do some shows maybe in the Netherlands, that's Holland and Germany. And um, then I would, uh, if I, you know, probably play with Eric, as I say, going to Japan or US shows. I don't know. I'm not, not counting, but I'm busy. I've been very, very busy. It's crazy. Last, um, 10 20 years when you know you should be winding down have been the busiest um of my career now an email you say you were going to go work in spain momentarily so oh no i'm going on vacation oh (laughs) yeah i thought you were playing gigs no we're we're doing uh i'm going away for a couple of weeks vacation with my wife to spain we have a small apartment over there oh you know i don't need the address but we're in spain it's on the, in the south on the Costa del Sol. Okay. Yeah, that's big. You know, Brits are really into that. Let's go back to the beginning. You're from Sheffield. Mm-hmm. What was what was it like growing up in Sheffield? I think it was pretty good. It was pretty good. It was very, by today's standard, it was extremely austere. Uh, but so was everywhere up in uh, in the north of england you know i've come from a pretty poor basic working class family my dad's family they were they weren't too bad but my my mom's family was very poor um my grand and i i never met either of my grandfathers they were both uh deceased by the time i came along but my uh, maternal grandfather was died at around 36 left six kids he was from uh, ireland and uh, he, he left six kids. So they, they were very, very poor. Even when we grow, grew up as kids, we, were, we didn't think we were, but we were poor. We, didn't have a, we had a tin bath in the front of the fire once a week. We had an outside toilet. But most people did around where we lived. And, but we, had, we could go out and play. We could pl- play in the open air all day long. We, no worries. So... Um, I think, actually, it was great. It was a great way to live. Okay, what we know about Sheffield in America, and we don't know much, we know that there was steel there, and Joe mm-hmm. Cocker was from there. Were mm-hmm. you aware of Joe Cocker? Oh, yeah, he was about two streets away from me. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was a bit older. Right. He was a bit older, and he was a, he was a man. I was a boy. And he, I was a little bit, oh, this guy, he's a bit, he's a bit scary, this guy, you know. Um, but he was a legend in England, of course, uh, in Sheffield. 
and he was play. He he could play uh, any night of the week, in a pub, or a club, and uh, I eventually got to see him. You know, I was about fifteen, something like that, and I snuck into a pub and I saw Joe uh, playing, and it was uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. And Chris Stainton, who plays in the in the Clapton band, was playing with him back in those days as well. So I've been I've been uh, hitting Chris for all the uh, old Cocker stories. Fantastic. Any other musicians who came from Sheffield? Well, back then, no, not really. There was a guy called Dave Berry. He had a little bit of success, but Joe, really, honestly, was the first one to uh, to come through, and we were all so delighted and little help from my friends uh it was so exciting because it was such a great record and then when he finally sort of broke through it was just great we everybody loved it so you're growing up how many kids in the family it was just me and my brother older brother okay you go to school you good student bad student i was just i was a good boy i did what i was told but i wasn't very academic at all um you know unfortunately my father had a fatal accident i don't know if i if you knew that but he had a fatal accident when i I was 11 my brother was 15 and um that that was a pretty uh profound experience but uh, my brother grew up overnight he he took charge of the shop where we lived the store and while my mom tried to recover from this incredible blow. And um, I just kind of, as long as I was going to school and not being any trouble, it was fine. But I, I, I had no interest in school at all. I didn't like it at all. I, I, I like sport and I like music. That was it. And were you an outsider? We were a member of a group, a lot of friends, no friends. Oh no, I had a lot. I know I was, I think I was a pretty popular kid. I was, you know, as I say, I wasn't academic. I was probably, I was a bit of a clown. As, you know, if we had a soft teacher, I, I, I would be a clown. And uh, no, I think I was pretty popular. I, I think so. Uh, I had plenty of friends, yeah. Okay. So you talk about the outdoor toilet, you talk about the tin tub. <laughs> At what point does that change? Well, it, it, it it got worse, <laughs> actually, because uh, I left home. The comforts. Of, okay, the when, creature, you left ho- when you left the home, when you left home, when you left home, you were still using an outdoor toilet. No, we had at that point, not long after my father died. Maybe he had an insurance policy. I don't know what, but we we actually moved from. Uh, living be- at the, behind the shop to a little semi-detached a couple of streets away still kept the shop but we had a a, a, a little semi-detached house which had a bathroom which was luxury okay so what was your introduction in music were your parents playing a lot of music my father's side were musical definitely uh, my grandmother and my aunt both played the piano um, and my father dabbled in the drums, I think. So, but uh, even prior to his uh, untimely death, um, but even more so after, we didn't have much contact with his side of the family. But we had a lot of contact with my mother's side of the family, who were very, uh, you know, uh, lovely 
people, you know, tough, um, common, uh, you know, poor, but great. They were such great support for us in, in emotionally after my father's passing. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So, you know, from the East Coast, I mean, from the United States uh, viewpoint, we had the Beach Boys, we had the Four Seasons, we had a lot of crap, <laughs> and then all of a sudden the Beatles hit, but the Beatles hit in 64 in America, mm. the beginning of 64, where they actually hit in 62 in the UK. So what point did you become into popular music? Oh, I was into it. I was into it already, yeah. Uh, I liked all those bands, you know, I liked the Ventures and people like that. And uh, as I say, my brother, my older brother, he, but there, and there was an instrumental band called The Shadows in the UK. They were the backing band for a guy called Cliff Richard. But I love the, but when the Beatles came, that was it, you know, and uh, in all the Liverpool uh, bands and all that, uh, all, all that stuff. I saw the Beatles a couple of times, uh, Sheffield City Hall. Everybody came through there, you know, everybody came through town and you saw them at the City Hall. So the Stones, uh, Roy Orbison, Dylan, Chuck Berry, you name it. So how, what was it like? How good were they? I don't know. I couldn't hear them. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was just electric, you know, and, and to see them and I saw, you know, see Ringo laying it. I was playing drums by this time in a little band at school. And, um, when I saw Ringo, you know, with the high hacks going like this, I oh, my God. You know, I've been tickling these drums. I need to give them some stick, you know. So, you know, I only know the American experience where we all had transistor radios, but yep. we also had uh, commercial radio. So did you have transistor radios and was it just the BBC or Radio Caroline, pop radio? When, when, what was the listening experience? Did you buy records? Did you have money to do that? There was hardly anything on the radio back in those days. There's so little. I'm not like today where you can't get away from it. But um, yeah, we had the little transistor radio, my brother, uh, under the bedclothes and we would try and tune into Radio Caroline and it would come and go Radio Luxembourg. Um, but, um, we didn't even have a proper record player. We had, uh, we had a wind up record. You're kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I am. I find it hard to believe myself, but we did. But the, the girl at the end of our yard where we lived, um, she had one. And then when she got a new model, she gave us her old electric record player and a lot of records like, um, Everly Brothers and, uh, Ricky Nelson and uh, Dwayne Eddy and things like this. And it was like, wow, this was great. Why did she give you her records? I don't know. I guess they got, maybe they got tired of them, you know, back then and it was on to the next thing and the next thing, you know. But um, yeah, we weren't, ask, we weren't asking questions. <laughs> How did you end up playing drums? Well, as I said, um, we had an attic at this shop where we lived and there were a couple of bits up there. There was a snare drum. There was a thing. It was like, almost like a toy bass drum. And, um, I said about playing this, uh, kit. I would play along to, to records. And, um, one year my father 
he he <laughs> for one Christmas he got this thing. It was like the old, you know, when the uh, like from the twenties. This kit with like the wooden blocks, the skulls, about five skulls on it. And uh, I used to mess around on that. And I was in I, I was into it. But um the year my when my, my father passed away, and um uh the Christmas after that, my m- mother bought with, with what the thing called high purchase, where you pay, you know, installments every month. They actually bought me a proper kit of drums. I mean, it was way too good for what I was, but I mean, it was just spectacular kit of drums and uh, tell, uh, 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 Trixon, Telstar, I remember it well. And um, so that's when I really started getting into it. And then tell me about forming bands. I had a little band at school, played the school concert when I was 12 or 13. It was fantastic. We did four Beatles songs, and uh, the girls threw Jelly Babies, <laughs> and asked and asked for my autograph. You know, the same girls in in the in the class. You know, so that was fantastic. And um, I think just before I left school at fifteen or sixteen, I started to play in the local soul band. I sold those drums that my mother had worked so hard to buy, and um, put down a payments on uh, an organ and uh, started playing in this soul band. How did you get involved with the organ? Yeah, good question. Because they needed one. They needed an organist. And uh, I had had a go on a on a, a Hammond organ that was in a recording studio that my friend had a session there. And I thought, oh, great. And he sold me a couple of chords. And um, as I say, then I wanted to join this this band and I, I i just started to teach myself learned some chords and stood at the back and played quietly and what kind of organ did you buy well i wanted to buy the vox continental which you probably remember with the of course the back to front black and white keys uh but i couldn't stretch to that so i bought this other thing it was awful actually it was made by selma selma capri and it was it was rubbish. But uh, many years later, again, I got my mom to sign the papers again, and we bought a, the low the low version of the Hammond organ, an M one hundred. You were always buying the equipment that's hard to schlep. You know, you got the yeah. drums, you got the Hammond organ. I yeah. mean, getting to the gig is a big deal. Yeah, that's that's a good point. One of my favorite things about when i i did the tour with the ringo star all-star band and he would he told a story about getting to the gigs he said it was always easy to get to the gig on the bus you know because everybody give you a hand but getting home you'd have to do it yourself and you'd have to walk down the street five yards with two cases then go back for the other two and walk down fortunately i had my uncle and, you know, I mentioned my mother's family and how supportive they were. My my uncle used to used to take me in in his car. That's right. I remember now. My uncle Percy, bless him. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way. A brand new show from My Heart Podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you finish with school. Mm. So how does your musical career unfold? Well, uh, as I said, I was already playing in kind of semi-pro bands. Um, I left school with no qualifications. Um, I just wanted to uh, gig with a band and that's what we did i think the next step was when i was about 17 we did the thing where you go to germany and play the clubs over there because that was the way that the beatles had done it years a few years before so we went over there i played for a month at the top 10 club in hamburg for example that kind of thing and it was great we loved it i mean we were we were we were very thin back in those days, <laughs> but uh, we were just having a great time. So, you come back from Germany and um, well, I remember now on this because we were playing covers. Yeah, we we you were playing with uh, two bands would alternate. You play forty fifty minutes, there'd be turnaround. The other band would play fifty minutes, and that went on through the night, and. Um, we met up with these other guys who were doing, you know, on with us. And uh, we 
we started to get into music and we were listening to music and smoking pot and uh, listening to the stuff that was happening in the 60s and wow this is happening and we decided we were going to go progressive so we we formed this band i'm trying to keep it a secret but it seems to be coming out these days <laughs> it's pretty dreadful um we were our big our heroes was frank zappa and the mothers of invention except good heroes. we could yeah good heroes but hard Hard act to follow. That's but, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, went through that sort of phase and, um, you know, living hand to mouth. But, you know, and then it was playing in Germany and the college circuit and everybody wanted free music. And the, yeah, it was that when you had the kids storming the place, they wouldn't pay to come in and stuff. Uh, and it all got a bit political and serious and crazy. And then everybody went, hang on a minute. No, this is ridiculous. And that's when we started to go back to rock and roll, playing in pubs around London. And this is called pub rock, very original uh, idea. But um, And that's when we formed Ace, playing around pubs in London. And um, hmm. So at what point do you become a songwriter? About then. Prior to that, with this um, sort of mothers of invention type band, we used to write these long pieces and that went on for 20 minutes or whatever and then and then would go free form <laughs> but then we start i start when with ace i started to write songs and one of the first songs i wrote was how long okay how could you write such a good song right at the beginning of your career don't know it it, it i often think it's great that people say it's a great song it's a very simple song don't tell anybody, but I mean, there's nothing much to it. It's got a big old hook and a verse that repeats itself. Um, but I think back then I was naive enough to think, you know, that I was inventing this stuff. I'd learn a new chord and it'd be like, oh, I like the sound of that and uh, make a song from it. So I didn't have any trouble writing songs then. Okay. Who owns that song today? Oh, God knows. It's changed hands a number of times. I think um, it's partly owned by Universal in America. And uh, in some territories, it's owned now by BMG. A couple of people who've had it along the way have retired and uh, <laughs> living in living in living on a desert island. But um, no, it was a pretty crappy deal. And do you still get songwriter royalties? We get some. I get some. Nothing like, I've, I've tried to shame them. I've tried to shame them into, you know, making it more civilized kind of deal, but they won't have it. And or how about public performance? You know, here it's called ASCAP, BMI. Yeah, yeah. Thank goodness that that was the only money I saw for a while, to be honest, from them, from that song. But uh, I do, it does trickle through. It's still been good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, if I get a half or a quarter, what I should have done, a song like that that hangs around for all those years, it's, it's pretty incredible, really. So it goes on for a couple of years with Ace. How yeah. did that end? Uh, not very dramatically. It fizzled out, really, is the truth. Um, we had that one big hit, and um, it, it was the only song like that on the record to be honest. Um, the uh, two of uh, the other main writers, because I was the last one to join 
and to come in and write stuff. The, the, it was formed by two other writers, Phil Harris and Bam King. And their stuff was a little more guitar, um, blues, country kind of stuff. And there was nothing else that really caught the eye, it caught the ear. And uh, we made another album that didn't really happen. So it kind of fizzled out is what happened. How do you get hooked up with Jake Riviera? <laughs> well, I knew Jake back in those days, when, but he was a roadie for a band called Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. Not obviously not to be confused with a band of a similar name. But um, so while I was in, in Ace and we lived for about a year in the mid-70s, so sort of 1976, while I was living over there doing the, being all Californian and everything. Whoa, 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 whoa. How does the band relocate to the United States? It was our manager's idea. He thought that we, you know, we'd had this huge radio hit in, uh, in the States and that we should try and make a go of it in the States, which is what we did. So what was it like, boy from Sheffield is living in sunny Southern California? Well, it was a bit unreal, really, because it, it was beautiful. It was fantastic, but we didn't get any work done. You know, we were messing around and going to the beach and playing soccer and all the rest of it, but um, and not writing any good songs. <laughs> so, um, but meanwhile, in the UK, things had gone, changed completely. And uh, Jake, Jake Riviera, had helped to found Stiff Records, which was, uh, you know, at the forefront of all the punk and uh, new wave stuff. It, they found Elvis Costello. And in fact, our good friend, when we were living in California, down the road was our friend Pete Thomas, who had played in this band, Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. And he was living over in the States and playing with some people like John Stewart and the country people. And he got the call from Jake to go and play with this guy, Elvis Costello. So Pete went back to the UK and six months or so later, we went back and it was like, Oh my goodness, it's all changed. You know, it's all, uh, it's over. You know, we've got beards and long hair and everything. They hate us, you know? So, but, um, Anyway, so I just started to work around London doing sessions. I worked with a, with Roxy Music, helped uh, made, made a couple of records with them and toured with them. And then Jay could take an on Squeeze. He 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 started to manage Squeeze, and um, the keyboard player Jules Holland had left the band. They auditioned tons of people. And Jake said, well, why don't you try Paul Carrick? He's back in town. He's been playing with Roxy Music. He's shaved his beard off. You look, get him in. And I went down and auditioned with them about a week before the recording of East Side Story album. And uh, and the next thing I knew, I was in the studio with him. Okay, how did you end up playing? You're a guy with one hit from a failed band. How do you end up working with Roxy Music? Well, um, I don't know how interesting this is, but no, it's, it's interesting to me. Okay, well, this is what happened: is that, as I said, I went back to the UK. I thought I figured it was kind of over, but I'd started to play uh, a few sessions. I just wanted to all the what I thought were the best players in London. They, that's what they did, and I used to hang out with this uh, group of 
players who I really admired. And um, they had played on the Brian Ferry Solar Records. And when Roxy reformed to make an album called Manifesto and then Flesh and Blood, they got, Brian insisted on having these guys play on the records. And they said, well, we got this other guy now and uh, he plays keyboards. Let's bring him along. And that was me. Okay, so good experience, bad experience? Oh, yeah, good experience. Yeah, good experience. I mean, it wasn't what... Uh, I'm a bit of a soul guy, you know. I wasn't at all glam rock. You know, it was the exact opposite. A boring denim plaid bloke. Um, but to go out on the road with Roxy, who were, you know, this was fun. You know, it was great. I enjoyed it. Yeah, there's a song on Flesh and Blood, Oh Yeah. Just oh, love yeah. that song. I might well be playing on it. How's it go? <laughs> I just had it in my mind. There's a song playing on the... Nee, nee, oh, nee. I'm playing on Please. that. I'm playing right. on that, yeah. Right. There's a song playing yeah. on the radio. I'm yep. playing the, the string synth there. Okay. But you know what made that record was the bass player. Because that song was not happening. It was like a doo-wop song. And then we went down the pub, came back, Alan Spenner, great bass player and he starts playing that bass line do 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 makes the, actually made it yeah anyway go on you're playing sessions i know in los angeles you know people call their friends in but usually if they don't read music they're squeezed out did you read music and no. how extensive was your uh session career and how did that work not reading music no i didn't read music i don't i don't think um Many of them in, on the, in, in London did, actually. But um, no, I was always pretty scared that I'd get found out, you know, so that, um, you know, I, that I couldn't really play that well. <laughs> but, um, you know, my musical instincts got me through my ear and, and the musical instincts I got me through um and i just saw it all as a learning experience but i was always terrified for the first half an hour or an hour that i'd get found out you know i was very insecure about that so how did it end with roxy uh i think it was just that um i did a couple of tours with him made a couple of albums and then the opportunity to do the squeeze thing came up and um I just remember calling up Roxy and they, they said they'd kind of done what they were going to do. And they said, no, go for it. And uh, that's when I, I kind of got involved with Squeeze. I didn't realize I was joining Squeeze. I thought I was just playing some sessions. But um, anyway. Uh, when did you realize you joined? <laughs> I think when I was on the plane going over to, st to the States to, uh, to do uh, the first tour with them, um, which was a dual billing of squeeze and elvis costello and the attractions two bands on the same bus uh 16 people i think they were on that bus there were two bands there was a security guy because elvis had caused some controversy tour manager 16 people uh <laughs> can you imagine so how did you end up singing tempted okay well as i said i was there to play keys really and um, we had recorded pretty much uh, the album. They had already recorded a version of this song, Tempted, which is completely different. Different how? It was just, 
I, I, I think I only heard it once or twice. It was uh, produced by Dave Edmonds, and uh, it was more sort of almost like Super Tramp or something. And better by the fruit of another. Um, and then this one day we started messing around in the studio. I'm playing Hammond organ, and they're doing it in that kind of soul uh, vibe. And Elvis Costello was producing the record. He came running in and said, let's put this down. Let's put this down. Put the track down. Everybody's like, ah, this is great. This is great. He said, yeah, but you know, Paul, you should sing it. So I went in. But, and, but, but and, why you? You must have had a reason. Perhaps he was just being nice. I don't know. Um, I mean, I was kind of thought of as a little bit of, you know, the blue-eyed soul singer even, you know. And uh, it was his his idea. So, uh, and, and how did he end up laying his response line there? I think he was just very keen to get in on it because it was such a great song. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, don't blame him. It was a great song. So at what point do you realize you have this great, unique voice? Well, um, I think always fancied myself as a singer you know but i'd sung how long and i'd sung all the, a lot of songs in i'm talking about before that oh before that well as a kid people remarked and they said oh he's got a lovely voice you know at school and things like that when i was little little you know and um but other than that um i didn't really do anything else even when i was in bands in the beginning I was only doing backgrounds because uh, usually there was a one guy, a designated bloke at the front. Um, so it wasn't till um, uh, we we formed Ace and I started singing lead. That's when I got the hang of it or started to get the hang of it. Well, from an outside perspective, your voice has not changed as good as it ever was. I mean, it's just, you know, freak of DNA or there are certain things you do to make sure you protect your vocal cords or what's going on there? Yeah, I think it has changed a little bit. I think I like to think in in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways it's got better. It's stronger, it's got a bit more timbre to it and um I just try to stay healthy. I don't do anything stupid like smoke or drink hard liquor. Um, Did you used to smoke and drink hard liquor? Oh, I've done. Yeah, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it's expected of you, you know. <laughs> but I, I like a glass of wine. But um, no, I th as I say, tr try and stay healthy. Um, I see all this stuff now on YouTube and stuff like that, how you can, um, you know, improve your... Um, your voice and things like that but uh blessed with a decent chords you know and um and a, and a musicality and uh i've developed it and used it you know keep using it that's the thing okay then you make a solo album good experience not so good experience which one was that <laughs> well let's go back one chapter how do you okay. end up leaving squeeze well, I was there for about a year, and um, I loved it. I I was happy playing keys, to be honest, because they didn't need a singer. They already had two singers. They didn't need a songwriter, particularly someone like me that wrote three or four chord lovey-dovey stuff. 
they had a thing. They had an identity. It was the songs. It was the sound of Glenn and Chris singing, and they didn't really need it. So I was having a good time, but um, it was obvious that you know if I was to develop as a singer and a songwriter, I couldn't really do it within the framework of that band, you know. And I, I wasn't going to try and impose my style on on them. They didn't need it, so um, that's kind of why I left. Well, you're walking from a good gig into the wilderness. It was a good gig, and as much it was fun. Yeah, it was great. But uh, yeah, I made a lot of strange decisions in, <laughs> in my career. You know, they're not all, not always been career moves but um it i'm not in a bad place now i love where i am now you know so if you had to do it all over again what would you have done differently mm, probably had a bit more faith in my own self and my my own ability but uh that's easier said than done you know it's tough to to make your way in 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 this music it it is tough so uh and i've also had a have, have a family you know to bear in mind and i wasn't prepared for them to suffer for my art you know so um i i probably wouldn't change anything i'll tell you why because you know people will say oh you could have done this you could have done more i could have done a whole lot less i've had a great varied career met some great people i never expected to do this and get this far and and um my career is actually not in a bad place at the moment. I have a, a lot of people like what I do. I have a great band who, you know, support me and uh, I, I have a great family. I, I really don't think I should ask for more. At what point do you meet your wife in this journey? Well, a long time ago, pre-ACE, pre-ACE. Um, uh, 1972, I think. And, uh, I just, I just met her. We were, we've been together since that day. So how'd you meet her? And she came, uh, her friend had designs on, uh, one of the other guys in the band and she came along to su a support <laughs> and I met her. I'm, I'm afraid it was like that. And at what point do you get married? Um, well, we were together for seven years, and we, then we got married um, not long before our first son was born. And um, we have had four great kids, and we now have uh, two and a half grandchildren, one on the way. So, uh, yeah, and she's been, she is great. She's a great person. She's honest. Being on the road, good or bad for the relationship? Well, it doesn't make life easy. I mean, goodness knows how she got on with four young kids um, while I was a, a, a away. But, you know, yes. Yeah, so, and she never gave me any uh, grief about that. You know, it was accepted. This was the only way I knew to make a living, and this is the way it's going to have to be. And, um, it's, it, it's great now that I've, you know, had a little bit of success here uh, along the way and I can help them, but it was tough, uh, you know, being away for, and that was a sacrifice sometimes, you know, 
to be away with a band that you're not fully a part of, and yet you I'm a team player. I am a team player. And I would always do my best, whatever the situation, and feel obliged sometimes. But, uh, you know, my wife, God bless her. Gosh. Don't know how she did it. <laughs> so prior to meeting your wife, or maybe after, what, to what degree were you enamored of the sex, drugs, and lo- uh, rock and roll lifestyle? Well, I've, I think I took my share. <laughs> I don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it with my kids um, because three of them for sure never really, never to my knowledge were interested in that. Um, One who's the chip of the old block, I'm pretty sure dabbled in various things. I'm hoping they're not going to hear this, by the way. (laughs) Well, leave that in your hands. Okay. But um, no, I mean, you know, it was expected of you. And 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 um, no, I'm guilty as charged, but not for a long time. Not not as soon as the family started coming along, it was obvious that they didn't mix. And I didn't I didn't have a rock and roll family. I didn't have rock and roll kids. You know, I I, I wanted a stable. Uh, I didn't want any of that uh, in 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 their life. So when we were talking about the do over thing, you were saying. If you had more confidence in yourself and your talents, I mean, the fan is just totally exterior. They don't really see what goes on in the mind. Are you telling us that you really didn't have enough confidence both to go out on a business level, an artistic level, you just saw yourself as a band member? Yeah, I think I was happy. Being uh, in a band environment, playing with people, having fun, I just thought maybe it wasn't for me, you know, to to have that. I didn't want it. I know I know the people that want that, you know, they have to they have to want it. And I was never that pushy, I, you know. I'm as I say, more of a team player. I, but I love singing, and um, so I've had to some extent uh, make myself uh, do that, you know have a bit more confidence and um and i have i have i have now but um i just don't think you can you you can't really say would i do it all again because you know you got to have the guts to do it and maybe i didn't have the guts you know or whatever i don't know we're at we're where we are now what would the guts have looked like <laughs> i don't know what that means to be honest well i mean you made it from Sheffield with the outdoor toilet. Oh yeah, to 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 you know to the hit parade. Yeah, not too so shabby. What 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 kind of characteristic would it have taken? That you, let me put is is it such that this is your personality or the boy from Sheffield? You can't take the boy out of Sheffield, or can people change or not change? It could be. I mean. Sheffield people, generally speaking, they are kind of self-effacing. They do get their self-deprivation, uh, what's the word, um, in. They don't like people that get too big for their boots. As I say, I'm a team player. I could make all the excuses in the world, but it boils down to the fact that, you know, you've got to want want it and you've got to be self orientated i'm i was 
as I say, I'm, I'm not complaining. I think things have gone pretty good. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So ultimately, you have a solo record and you have a hit in the United States. So do you think you're on your way then? What's going through your mind? Are we, are we talking about Don't Shed a Tear? Yeah. No, no. We're talking about I Need You. Isn't I Need You before oh, that? Oh, I Need You. Yeah, I Need You was kind of top 30. Yeah, that was uh, a step in the right direction. Yeah, I thought things were moving well there. I was in uh, working a lot with Nick Lowe. Um back in those days and uh yeah i was getting a bit more confident and cocky then um i'm trying to think chronologically how things happened i know that uh after mike and the mechanics i got a solo contract and i had my first top 10 hit which is the song uh, don't shed a tear and um that was pretty exciting sadly my wife got ill at this at this time, and um, uh, we were, I was on tour in the states, and I, I had to go home, and um, we had to um, 
you know, take care of her for 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 a little while. So uh, we lost a little bit of momentum there. But um, as I say, I'm where I am now. I think is pretty good place. So how do you end up working with Mike and the Mechanics? Um, do you want the long story? Yes, give us the long story. <laughs> okay. Um, well, um, I'm trying to think now. Okay, so it, I had a band with Nick Lowe for several years. Which okay, let's great. start there. How do you end up now falling in with Nick Lowe? You must have known him from the stiff years, but how did you reconnect? No, I knew him before then. I knew him before the stiff years. I how, knew, did you know, knew, how did you know him? Well, because we were on this pub rock circuit. I, we, I was in Ace. He, he had a band called Brinsley Schwartz, and they were probably the best uh, band on that circuit. But we were the ones that had the lucky hit. Anyway, so we, I didn't then see much of Nick for many years and until he became this rec- new wave record producer, producing The Damned and Elvis Costello and these people. And, um, and then we all ended up under the same roof under the Jake Riviera stable because uh, Nick was always with Jake and he'd taken on Squeeze. And um, Nick produced my first album, which was called Suburban Voodoo, which uh, is a very fueled kind of record. Um, what does that mean? We were loaded, basically. Okay. You know, um, it sounds like it, though. <laughs> but um, I bought it. I was happy. Did you? Yeah. Good. Well, I, it was very exciting. Um, um, where, where, where did this start now? At, uh, we're, we're evolving. Oh, Mac and the Mechanics. Right. Okay, so I one of the reasons I'd left Squeeze, actually, was because I, I loved Nick and I wanted to work with him. Um, he, But uh, unfortunately, at the time, he wasn't having a great time. He was having a divorce and all this stuff was going on. So he wasn't a lot of fun <laughs> a lot of the time. But um, we had this band. And if if I had a record out, we went out as Paul Carrick. And if it, Nick had a record out, it was Nick Lowe and the cowboy outfit or noise to go or what have you. And um, so that was great. We had it. We, we, we were playing uh, up and down the States, either playing in little dives or opening up for people like Tom Petty on these long tours, uh, opening up in the arenas and what have you. And had a lot of fun, but then it started to get a bit old. And we, we've all decided, really, that it's, it's, it's run its course. And coincidentally, I get a call from a guy called B.A. Robertson, who is um, calls me up out of the blue. I don't know him from Adam. And he he's written this song that he wants to pitch to a movie. And he says, um, we should get that guy who sang that song, How Long? So he called me up and said, you're that guy that sang that would you come and sing this demo for me? Cause I'm pitching this. I said, okay. Yeah. Because you never know. So I just went and did it. I didn't get paid or anything like that. Sang this song for him. And he said, Oh, by the way, I'm uh, writing songs with Mike Rutherford from Genesis. He's making a solar record. And uh, would you think you'd be interested in coming down and singing a couple of songs on that? And I said, sure. Yeah. Why not? And uh, so I went down, I met Mike, went down to the, genesis studio there and um they said just go and uh you've got this little song here it's just three chords just go in there blues away and it was this song silent running or can you hear me 
So they only had the can you hear me bit at this point, and then and I'm just riffing away. And they said, oh, that sounds great. And BA went away and wrote this weird lyric. And um, I sang a couple of songs, a couple of three songs on that first album and then thought no more about it. And then the record came out and it was well-received. And Mike was in a position to assemble this kind of studio band into a touring band, and we became Mike and the Mechanics. Okay, then there's the second album with yep. Living Years. Yes. So how is that album made? Because you're a member of the group now. You're one yeah. of the mechanics. I'm one of the mechanics, yeah. <laughs> I'm not Mike, though, as my uh, news agent used to think. But, um, yeah, well, I was I was really happy to get to sing that song. Um, obviously, I, I kind of felt it was a bit of a tribute to my dad, but um, it was it, the song really was about B.A.'s relationship with his father and all the rest of it but um so that's a kind of a feather in the cap we were nominated for grammy awards and all sorts we didn't get it but um nevertheless we we had some good success um for for a few albums and it was good fun but it was it was mike's project you know so how does it feel when you're not writing the songs well, originally I, I I didn't mind because it was it was different to um, anything I would I'd been involved with. You know, it still had that uh, sort of Genesis kind of connection. I was felt I was more of a rootsy kind of guy, but it was something different. But I was happy to be involved. And but then I started to think, well, you know, it's the songwriters back in those days that were making any, any of the money. So, and I also felt that I could contribute to the songwriting. And uh, fortunately, Mike had already had this thought and started to include me more in the songwriting. And how did you write Over My Shoulder? Uh, very quickly. Oh, pretty quickly anyway. I mean, I went down to Mike's house and um, he said, okay, well, I've got this little idea. And he started strumming the opening chords, as you're probably familiar with. And... Um, I started, we put the cassette player on and I started to riff away. And um, after 20 minutes of riffing on this, on these chords, the, um, the tape ran out and I'd, I'd been thinking, I don't think he's digging this because it's, it's too pop for him. You know, he's not going to like this anyway. And then he said, actually, you did something at the very beginning of the thing and we wound the tape right to the top and there i'm singing for whatever reason looking back over my shoulder and um, he he loved it so i it was great we it was the whole shape was there from the get-go and then i took it away and wrote some lyrics to it and that was it but that was a big song in europe and the uk but i don't think it ever took off in the States. No, I love that album, though, and I certainly mm. know that song. That was my favorite song on the record. Uh -huh. uh, but how do you normally write a song? I don't know, Bob. I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that one. No, Sometimes. I mean, there are, you know, some people sit down there with a pad of paper and they write and they scratch. Other people are taking a shower. They get an idea. Some people, it all comes all together. Some people work them for a year. Usually it's it's a musical idea that will just come from jamming away and uh, a phrase, 
you take that phrase and uh, and then and you add to it. I, I very rarely have a plan. I very rarely have an idea of a uh, concept or a, uh, even a title. Um, th- that all seems to come later. If if I'm lucky, something comes off the top of my head that sings good, and that I can uh, develop and make into something. And once I get a start on it, I now have the confidence that I can make a reasonably decent lyric. It's not going to be that original. I'm not intellectual, as you probably guessed by now, I should think. But um, And I'm not a reader. I'm not, uh, I don't read books so much. I read news and articles and stuff like that. But um, I like to think I can make something. It, it's probably borderline cliche, but I can make it sound not too cliched. And it can sound good. It will sing good because that's important as well. So the kids are out of the house. You can't play music 24-7. You're not reading books. What, do you, what takes your time up all day? What do you do? Well, I don't have any problem filling in my time uh i've got this little studio at home and if i'm not on the road i'm in here messing about um yeah i think that's where my, my most of my time goes i still like soccer but my team is really awful and terrible but uh, what's your team my team sheffield wednesday we're now in the third division they've been in the premier league and, and back in how, how long ago were they in the Premier League? About twenty years. Sorry, when I was growing up, they were real good. Who owns it now? Oh, it's owned by a Taiwanese. So, is uh, there any is there any hope? No. There's hope that we will survive, um, which was looking a bit scary uh, at the beginning of this year because uh, this guy spent a whole lot of money, which you're not allowed to do in the lower divisions. And we were in all kinds of trouble and we're getting points deducted for the financial uh, stuff. And he'd blown a load of money on the wrong players and he, he didn't know what he was doing, but he insisted he did. So I thought we were going out of business completely, but um, there's hope that we'll survive. But to be back in the Premier League is a different planet now. The, the money up there is just crazy. And then you work with Elton John as a keyboard player himself. How do you end up working with Elton John? Yeah, he's a great piano player, but he doesn't play organ. And organ is a different thing. It's just different. I mean, he probably could if he could be bothered to figure it out. But um, actually, I'm a better organ player than piano player. It's just because you can get away with murder on the on the organ if you know how to coax the sound out of it. And um, I seem to have a reputation for playing the Hammond organ. So uh, he actually, he, here's a story for you. You're not getting fed up with these stories. No, 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 you? go on. <laughs> stories are the best part. So Elton uh, was friendly with Chris Difford from Squeeze. Mm-hmm. I think it was to do with the... Um, the program, you know, and uh, I think uh, Elton was at one time sponsoring Chris. And um, one night, Elton turned up at a squeeze show 
in uh, a concert in the in the UK and got up and sang a couple of songs and the place just went crazy and of course I've been playing organ that night and he must have thought oh well we'll get him in and uh, I played on uh, a couple of tracks one of which was apparently the b-side or the extra track on the famous candle in the wind which at one point was the best-selling record of all time. So my tenuous link to that is that I played on the other track, which is called Something in the Way You Look Tonight. Yeah, that, that track is a known track too. Okay, it's a known track. so you play the keyboard. You also play the guitar. Can you just basically play anything? You have that facility? Yeah. I don't play any of the wind instruments. But um, yeah, I'm not great, you know, but I... I, it's I've got the musical instincts, and I have a feel, a natural feel. You know, it's even my son is the same. You know, he picks up he picks up the guitar. He doesn't know what he's doing, but it looks like he's played it all his life. Um, so I have a feel, I have a groove, and that gets me a long way. Okay, so at this point, you have a desire to leave a body of work. Isn't that sort of equivalent to having the hunger that we spoke of earlier? Possibly. Possibly. Okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's tempting to say I've given it a good shot. I've had a great time. We could probably, I could take it easy. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's in the genes or what it is, or I just think I could have done so much better. Not commercially, but, you know, musically, I could have done better things and maybe had a bit of recognition. Um, well, that didn't worry me too much. Probably scares me more than anything. But, um, but why does it scare you? Well, only because I don't like attention, really. You know, I, if I go to the soccer game, I don't want people looking at me going, oh, poor character. Yeah. I, I, I don't want that. I, don't, I just like to live normal life, albeit, you know, comfortably. <laughs> you know? Are you ever recognized? Occasionally, but not much. Okay, so we go through this history. Unlike someone who starts in a band, stays in that band their whole career, you're constantly making new connections. Now, people say, oh, it just happened. I've been around too long to know it doesn't happen that way. What was yeah, the but key? Yeah, go Bob, on. I'm, I'm not a networker. I, so how honestly, did it happen? I'm not a networker, and I don't know, I don't hang out with Eric, you know. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, you're established, but over forty or fifty years, opportunities have come up. Yeah, well, they have just happened. They have just happened. I haven't been out there beating the bushes looking for this stuff. It it has just happened. Okay, but you know, there were no times you talk about getting married, having kids. There are no times you're sitting at home saying, "Man, I need a gig. I got to start calling people up, see what's going on." No. Well, fortunately. There, for for whatever reason, um, I things have come up at the right time when they've. I mean, don't get me wrong. I was when I when when I'm in my mid thirties and my early forties, and I've got no hair, and I and I've got four kids. 
Yeah, I was thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? But uh, thing, always, something always turned up. Uh, but I wasn't out there on the phone hustling. Honestly, I'm not like that. So you do a couple of songs, you write a couple of songs that end up being done by the Eagles. One on their Hell Freezes Over album, another one on the Long Run Out of Eden album. How did that happen? Again, with the long stories. <laughs> it's a long story. If you I want, want it. A, I want a long story. That's the best <laughs> well, we've part. We've been going an hour and a half already. We're not going to go that much longer, but we're going to hear this. <laughs> um, well, I first met Timothy B. Schmidt. 1975, on our first tour, Ace's first tour of America, when we were riding high with our big radio hit, and Timothy's in the band called Poco. We're both on the same record label. I met him, seemed like a real nice guy, and uh, didn't really meet him again until later, when I think I was probably on either doing my gigs with Nick or in Nick's band, Nick Lowe's band. And Timothy came down a few times with Don Henley. And I, I found out that Don uh, liked what I did. He liked that Suburban Voodoo album. And um, so he came down to a few gigs. And then, must be skipping a good few years here, but about in the mid-90s, when the Eagles hadn't weren't together, you know, for whatever reason, I have no idea none of my business. Um, but I got a call from Don Felder, who was keen to do something. He, they, he and Timothy, and I, at that point, I believe Joe Walsh also, they would wanted to do so. They wanted to work. They wanted to do a project, make a record, maybe do some gigs. And they called me up out of the blue and said, do you fancy uh, coming over? to uh, California and, uh, you know, see what happens. And I did just like that. Just got on a plane and went over there, stayed at Don's place. And I think Joe at this point had bailed and he'd gone to get himself sorted out. And uh, so there was Don, there was Timothy and another guy called Max Carl, a great guy. He was in a band called 38 Special. Great singer. Very funny guy. And uh, we spent some time writing songs, making some recordings, and everybody was getting out. Oh, this is interesting. This could be good, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, one of the songs I took over there was this song, Love Will Keep Us Alive, which was I'd co-written with Peter Vale, Jim Capaldi. And... um, with a view to taking it over for this project. And um, so we took it over there. I was singing it and we were making these recordings. Everybody's getting excited. But um, obviously to cut this long story short now, the Eagles decided to get back together. So that was the end of that project. It never, it didn't happen. But um, a few weeks later, um, I got a call from Timothy and said, look, I need a song to do on the Eagles album. How about I do Love Will Keep Us Alive? And of course we said, well, that'd be, yeah, absolutely. So he did that one and it was uh, a big radio 
record. It was part of the unplugged thing and all that. And uh, likewise, on, on the um, Hell Freezes Over, uh, sorry, Long Road Out of Eden album, Timothy rang me up. And there's a there's another long story here, but basically I wrote this song. No, 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 no. no. I want to hear that story. <laughs> Just tell me that story. I know all well, these people. Timothy called me up. He said, I need a song. We're making an album. I need a song. Nothing that he, you know, presented to the band had been accepted. And um, I put the phone. He said, have you got anything? I said, well, I don't, but I'll try and write something, which I don't usually do. I'm not one of those guys that does that. But I put the phone down and literally came up with the chorus for this song as I could hear the Eagles singing in three-part harmony sort of thing. And uh, I made a little demo and I sent it to Timothy and um, didn't hear much from him. But then he said, oh, we're coming over to England. We're going to play in London. You come on down, come to the show. And I did. And he said, by the way, when I went to the show, he said, have you got anything? And I said, well, there was that song I sent you. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me that again. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I sent it again. And then there were weeks and months probably went by and I didn't, I wasn't hearing anything. And I sort of got in touch with him and I said, oh, that song, um, I don't want to hear anymore. I said, if, you, if you're not going to do it, you know, I, I'm going to do it sort of thing. He's, and he said, no, well, well, actually, I just, you know, they he put it to the band and they were interested in doing it and, um, and, they, re, and, the, and they recorded it and it went on Long Road Out of it. I think it's a good song, actually. I don't want to hear anymore. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers 
or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How'd you end up writing with Jim Capaldi? Uh, I didn't really know Jim. It, I think at, at one point he was possibly going to be part of this uh, project. I, To be honest with you, I think they changed their mind about that. But um, at that early stage, it was possible that he might be involved in this, in this Eagles offshoot thing. And so I met him and we got together with this guy, Pete uh, Vale, who... Um, is a good songwriter and uh that's we we got together and wrote that song okay so how many people went today when you go out on the road how many people do you take how many people are in your band there's um are there six or seven we are is it we're seven we have two drummers one of which is my son jack he's been with us about 10 years we have bass guitar keyboards sax and myself playing keys and guitar alternating. How many is that? Is that six or seven? I wasn't counting. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's 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 quite a big band, but um, it's great. The guys have been with me for uh, twenty odd years. They're all from Sheffield, so really? they're all they're all proper down to earth guys. They're none of these hustling kind of. Uh, no, that's I. I don't want to disrespect anybody here, but they, you know they're not hustling for gigs like you have to do in in, in London or LA or New York. You you got to be busy. They're not. They're up in in Sheffield, and they're not working with me. They play with their other things, their other little projects, and it's like a proper band. Except I'm the boss. And how did you meet the guys from Sheffield? Okay, um, when I started doing this solo thing. Nobody knew really the name Paul Carrick. It's probably like it is in the States. You go, how long? Oh, yeah, I know how long. Living is, I love that song. It's all that, but Paul Carrick, no, I never heard of him. Um, so I started doing these small gigs, and uh, I was using guys from London who were, you know, proper session guys, used to a high standard of, not just wages, but all the rest of it, the nice hotels, the nice travel. And, blah, and I couldn't give it to them, but they were trying to help me. But I felt it was a burden because I felt I'm not giving them what they're due and what they're used to. Anyway, I met I met this guy at the football, at the Sheffield Wednesday game. And he was like this small time agent up in Sheffield. And I tried to explain to him, oh, yeah, I, I'm doing some gigs. but No, I don't make any money. No, I don't make I, yeah, I'm driving the van, and um, he couldn't get his head around this. Anyway, eventually he said to me, well, listen, I've got this band. They're really good. Um, they got a lead singer, but we, he can play the keyboards, and uh, he could, they could do your gigs. And I, went and, and, and I went and met these guys, and they were like, oh, yeah, great. 
so they um i bolted myself onto this northern club band and uh it was <laughs> initially a lot of people thought what's paul doing he's playing with these guys up north and um but it was worked great because these were these were great guys they loved the opportunity to play with me and they could all play good but they didn't have reputations or big names or anything like that so and that's it and from 20 years we've grown to a, a really good a really good band many people on the business side would say you're taking out seven people how are you supposed to make any money well i don't pay them much you know <laughs> <laughs> well that's that we, we are we are doing okay because we know what we're doing it's easy to waste money it's easy to waste money making a record or going out on the road if you don't know what you're doing. But if you do know what you're doing and you, you spend the money in the right places, but you don't waste money, then, you know, you can make it work. Definitely. Okay, we know the studio side. What are the, dig a little bit deeper on the road side. What are the key things you must do or not do? Um, you must be good every night. You must be good every night. It's no good being on fire for three nights and then, burnt out for the rest of the tour you know you might that's one thing um or are you talking sort of financially again i like both of them i wasn't asked the other question that's even better <laughs> yeah well initially we weren't making any money um but i didn't have to lose money because they took uh reasonable wages we didn't overextend ourselves. We did things very basically. And we've built up a following from uh, gigging and gigging and gigging. And each year, our standard has gone up. Our standard of uh, sound system, our standard of production, lighting, uh, venues uh, goes up each year. So uh, now we play nice theaters here in, uh, in the UK. And uh, people keep coming back, you know, so it's... I think that's how you do it. And how do you grow the audience? You were talking about you have to be good every night. What are the other keys? Well, I don't know the secrets to, uh, you know, social media and all that. I'm not a very, not really a social media animal, but uh, I guess you can make that work for you. But in our case, it's been a case of, you know, winning people over. We're, we, 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 we we take them we take it seriously our, our our responsibility to to people you might think that people uh, that's obvious but it, it isn't in a lot of cases you know some people kind of take their audience for granted a little bit i don't know i shouldn't be saying that but we don't i know that so to what degree does the audience know the material you've been putting out new records constantly so when the audience comes, do they know this music? How much of it can you play? It, yeah, well, it's a mixture because obviously we always include six or seven songs there that are pretty substantial hits. Living Years, How Long, Tempted, uh, you know, Love Will Keep Us Alive. The, these, these are pretty big songs. So we're always going to do them. We love doing them. We love the response. So we've got, people who know everything we've done and there's other people who may have heard a couple of things and 
and then they're often surprised. Oh, I know, you know, they know that they don't realize until they get there that they know more of the material than they thought. But we've got some pretty, pretty uh, great fans. And do you personally go out to the merch table and sign and meet people? Actually, you know, I used to. I used to do that just to prove what a nice guy I am. But I did. I realized we're touring in the middle of winter. People are coming up to you going, hey, nice to meet you, Paul. Um, so we stopped doing that for hygiene reasons. <laughs> and you say you, you play the first couple of months in the year. Can you go back to the same markets every year? Seems so. Wow. That's really great. Okay. So if you look at But music- we are always changing. We, all, we usually have a new album out and we include new, new stuff from that. Okay. That's you're it. on stage. The mm. legends, they play new music. It's a cliche. Everybody goes to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. How do you decide how much new music to play and how do you keep the audience interested? That's a good point. I mean, well, we're not a, we're not a greatest hits act. Um, I don't think the music is the, the music is is not inaccessible, if that's a word. Um, you know, you usually get this music, or you don't. We're not. It, it, it's not that demanding in that sense. I don't think. Um, but I don't know. Obviously, it's uh, it's something we have to think about. But um, I think, generally speaking, they like the new. They like to hear new stuff. Okay, if you look back at the landscape, what are a couple of records, not your own, not ones you've worked on that are important to you, that really motivated you or stick with you or you still play? Uh, I love Talking Book. Oh, yeah. Especially at the time, I thought it was a groundbreaking, revolutionary, and it was one guy as well, a lot of it, you know, playing the stuff, and it had its own personality. And it wasn't even quantized back in those early days. It was just hung together beautifully. And um, I love Moondance, Van Morrison. Two great records. Just think it's a beautiful, organic record. I love the sound of it. I love the band on it. And, of course, Van's great. Um, I think it's a very honest album. I, I love that album. Uh, um what else there's a, a, a an aretha record i play a lot but it's it's a compilation i guess i think it's a greatest hits type thing but that again it has that great band feel to it life feel to it i've got a pretty mixed uh mixed taste in music and are you generally just playing your own music or are you listening to other people's music do you keep up on new music where do you fall on that to continue? No, I don't. I don't really keep up with what's going on. I haven't got a clue what's going on. Um, I don't listen to my own stuff other than when I'm working at it. Which, I mean, in the last year, it's been a lot because I've been doing it by yourself. It 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 does mean you playing it a lot, you know, because uh, you're getting the parts right and all the rest of it. But um, no, I don't uh, listen to much new stuff. Um, I listen to a lot of old stuff. I listen to like Amos Milburn and um, Little Junior Parker and uh, Mose Allison and um, Donny Hathaway, things like that. Some classical, some English classical music. 
which I find quite relaxing. And yeah. Okay, Paul, thanks for filling us in all this. I want you to have a good vacation down there on the coast of Spain. Thank you, Bob. So thanks so much for doing this. You're very welcome. And uh, thank you for your patience listening to all this. No, listen, it's going to go deep that it's good. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.